Good morning. Welcome to Harvest Bible Church. We are in our the Gospel of Luke, as you can see, have been for a little over a year. The uh, passage today will overlaps with what we talked about last week. I obviously went through the first two, four verses last week, and um, because forgiveness is such a huge issue, it deserves more than one sermon. It should be talked about all the time, I think. I hope that you're discussing it in your shepherding groups. Um, Jesus said to his disciples, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, that people who cause others to sin should come about. Verse 1. Woe to him through whom they come. They're going to come. Make sure it's not you. As Christians, even as a preacher, you can cause people to stumble. Uh, sometimes it's, it's in a sinful way. Sometimes people are just offended because they're offended. But that's big. That should cause us all to be somewhat frightened. That I might cause someone to stumble. And if it's better that I would have a, a huge rock tied around my neck and be thrown overboard and go to the bottom of the sea. It's better that that should happen than I cause someone to stumble. I should be careful about what I say, how I act, especially when we call ourselves Christians. Some people know only Sunday morning Christianity if they know that. They only know how to behave a certain way on Sunday morning. After that, they're just their own person. They do and act as they please. Nothing about it's Christian. It's confusing to the children. It's confusing to their friends. You've been with people before. You thought they were Christians. Maybe you go to church with them and you, you go on some occasion with them, maybe out to eat, maybe on vacation, maybe you play golf together. And they, they say things that just aren't in keeping with what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. They, they do things. They suggest things. I've seen it happen. I know that as a young golfer, I grew up on the golf course and uh, there were men around me that went to the church where I went, and it confused me how they spoke, how they talked. Um, I had a, an uncle once who, who used the Lord's name in vain, and I, I thought, how can that be? Is that possible to do that? You're a deacon in the church. It confused me. It confused me for years. It caused me to stumble. I mean, as a kid, I thought, well, it must be okay. I can't say that I went off into a lifestyle of it, but it, it confused me. Jesus is saying sin is inevitable. It's going to be out there, but be careful. Be very careful if you were a follower of me. Because he says there in 17.1, he said to his disciples. That's those who are following him. This is in contrast to the other times in this context where he speaks to the Pharisees, this religious group that, that thinks they're high and mighty, thinks that God loves them above all others. It's as if he turns his attention from those high and mighty legalists to his disciples and says, guys, it's inevitable that sin is going to be out there. It's inevitable that people are going to sin and they're going to cause people to stumble. Make sure it's not you. Make sure it's not you who causes your children to sin. As a preacher, as a pastor, here at this church for 23 years now, I've raised two children. They've been in my home. I've had to act in a way that's consistent with them at home as I do here. My wife told me one time when I was being particularly harsh with her. She said, do you consider me one of your sheep? What? No, you're a goat. <laughs> That's what my flesh wanted to say, but I knew where she was going. Do you consider me one of your sheep? Answer the question. Yes. Then treat me with the gentleness that I deserve the way you treat the church. And the next day she got me this little figurine of a sheep. I still have it, and I remember it, and <laughs> dang, she's wise. She's just, every time I see it, I see her going, bah. <laughs> In other words, Lance, you have a, an inner circle here of two children and a wife. Make sure that you are acting with us the way you tell everyone else to act, and try to act around them. Good advice. Good advice. Which is why I think the first part of verse 3 belongs with verse 2 where he says, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Constantly. Be on your guard. Those who call themselves Christians. Be on your guard. People are watching. Whether you know it or not. I was at the beach one time. I was a teenager. I think I was 18. I was a senior in high school and we were with 
It's with my good buddy of mine who's not a Christian. And then there were three younger ones with us from the church. And uh, we, I had taken my buddy with me so we could witness to him. And we were out to the beach. And it's a it's Galveston. We played volleyball and blah, blah, blah. I had a good old time at the end of the day, you know, going back. Well, these girls come to us. And, and they, they want to party. Hey, party. I'm going, no, we don't party, huh? But I'll share the gospel with you. Well, my unbelieving friend really wanted to party. Partay. And no, we're not going to do that. No, no, we, we go over to their condo and, and I'm trying to witness to them. And we get out unscathed and uh, my buddy was just upset by it. And uh, I didn't know it, but the three younger ones were watching me the whole time. I had no idea until one of them wrote to me the next week. He said, I, I, said, I didn't know what you were going to do, how you were going to behave. He said, but thank you. And I thought, wow, they were watching they were watching, and had I been a, a, a stumbling stone to those young guys, who are adults now, no doubt, um, I, I, would, I remember what he said because I, I'm so thankful that I didn't give in to the, to the temptations that were there to be given into. It's not a pat on the back, I promise. It's only by the power of God, and it's just a reminder. People are watching. As my children watched me, they are grown adults now, and they watched me. My son goes, my, my daughter still comes here which must say something, um, who is in Christ. My son goes to a church um, in, in Montgomery, which is a mirror church of ours. I love the pastor. He's one of my close friends. And he demands that, my son does. And I thought, wow, by the grace of God, they saw me. They saw me act a certain way. It was consistent. Be on your guard, Christians. Your children are watching. Your neighbors are watching. If your brother sins, in verse 3, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day, saying, I repent, forgive him. Part two, in a quick nutshell, is if you can't forgive, you don't know what it means to be forgiven. There is just no way to be someone who calls yourself a Christian who cannot forgive. It's impossible. A Christian forgives because a Christian knows how deeply they have been forgiven. Folks, this works in marriage it works in friendships. It works in your employment. Marriage is all about forgiveness, in case you don't know that. For you guys who are not yet married, you might think, well, there might be a situation where I might have to forgive one day. No. It, it can be every day. It's what a marriage is. It's about forgiving. Especially if you're a man. You say insensitive things. But women do the same thing. It's about learning to say, I'm sorry. I recognize where I messed up. We are just raw, wild, stallion-type people until we get married and we live with another human being. We have to consider their feelings. We have to consider what they want. It's a roommate at some level. Ask for forgiveness. Grant forgiveness. I've told you the story of a family who was here. They, they were married 50 years at the time, and she asked me to speak at their, at their, uh, their re, not their reunion, their anniversary, their 50-year anniversary. She said, what are you going to say? I said, well, I'm going to talk about what a great submissive woman you've been. She said, no, you're not. You're going to talk about what it means to forgive in marriage. I am. Yes, sir. She proceeded to give me the sermon. And she should have. I didn't know. I didn't know that there was that much forgiveness needed. And they've been married 50 years, and now it's been 55, 57 years, perhaps, something like that, of forgiving, forgiving and forgiving and forgiving in marriage to your neighbors, to the people you love, to the people you don't love. Forgiveness. To someone who may kill your own child, you don't go to the death chamber and watch them die a slow, painful death. You don't watch them get electrocuted or watch a poison go into their veins and, and have some satisfaction at their death. You forgive even if they don't ask for it. Now, granted, when people ask for it and they say, I, I ask you to forgive me, I'm repenting of it, there's reconciliation in the relationship. But we forgive one way or the other. Because that's what a Christian does. How can we do that? Let me read to you. I'm going to go through, turn over, if you, will, if you will, with me to Matthew's gospel. Matthew gives a parable in Matthew 18. I just want to run through it. It's, it's illustrative of what we're talking about. It's, if you don't know it's there, you need to know it's there. Matthew, Matthew 18, verse 23. It's in the same context. Luke just doesn't share the parable where Matthew does. Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Three times? 
Seven times, I should say. Yes, seven times. Jesus said not seven times. Seventy times. Seven times. Endlessly. And then he illustrates it. Matthew 18, 23. He speaks of the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God on earth. This is what it's compared to. Compared to a king, by the way, the king represents God, who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. So slaves are going to represent his people. Verse 24, when he had begun to settle with them, one who owed him 10,000 talents, and that just means an unpayable amount, was brought before him, brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and his children and all that he had, and repayment be made. The slave fell on the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. How about that? That's God. You and I realizing our sin coming before him and Lord, I cannot repay. If you'll give me a lifetime, I'll try maybe. But a lifetime is not enough time to pay an unpayable debt. And so God in his mercy says, I'll tell you what, it's gone, forgiven, over. Isn't that awesome? This is indicative of our our king, God. Us coming before him realizing that we we can't pay back. We can't undo the fact that Jesus, who is God in flesh, came and died. What are we going to do? Give God 10%? Give God 90% of our money? What are we going to do? Serve him every day and somehow that's going to atone for the death of Jesus? We can't pay back. The only way God can forgive us is by grace. And just saying, all right, forgive the debt. Those of us who have been forgiven and realize it run off and How can I serve you, Lord? Not this guy. Verse 28. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. A couple months of of money. And this is going to be, this this part of the illustration of the parable has to do with sins that that exist between us. Something that you did to offend me. Something that I did to offend you. Maybe I owe you money. Maybe one day you saw me. I looked at you. You ever had somebody, you ever looked at someone and you saw them, but you didn't really see them. And you only know it later when they said, I saw you that you didn't speak to me. You did? Yeah, you looked right at me. Anyone ever been guilty of that? You see people, but you don't see them. When I'm standing in this part of the hall, out here, and I'm looking out that way, I'm looking into the light, and I don't see well into the light. I, just, I might see a figure. You know, I kind of give it the... <laughs> and put the sheepish smile. How you doing? Well, if it's someone I know, hey, is that all I get? I get the sheepish, how you doing? By name, Lance, because I usually call people by name. If I see you, I call you by name. I think that's important. If I don't have the name, I'll go through a list of names like I did with my friend Troy here this morning. Lee, Billy Bob, Troy, yep, that was it. His wife is Carrie, but I called her Karen, so I was close. I got some points for that. But anyway, people will hold that against you. Hey, you saw me, you didn't speak to me. So it's an offense between people. People take it very harshly when you see them and you don't speak to them. Or you forget their name. I had one guy came, got right in my face, said, what's my name? And he put me in a terrible position. I knew his name. I had greeted him by name many times. But he put me in a tough position. The bandwidth wasn't working. It was slow. I needed to reboot. I didn't know it. I said, you know I know you. He never came back. He never came back. And it really was one of those things that after he had left, it was, Max! But he was gone, and he did not come back. He's since deceased. But this has to do with, with problems between Christians. Pay back what you owe, the forgiven slave told the other slave. Verse 29, so his fellow slave fell, fell on the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. Same thing that slave did with his king. But he was unwilling, and he went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. He was forgiven, but he couldn't forgive, wouldn't forgive. Never say he can't forgive. He wouldn't. So he was noticed by his fellow slaves. And this next passage is going to have to do with us as Christians. We keep each other accountable. We notice what people do and don't do. We hold them accountable. Verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they apparently knew the man had been forgiven all of his debt, saw the guy go out and try to get someone to pay him what little debt they owed him. When they saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. That's the king. Then summoned him, his Lord, and said to him, You wicked slave. Earlier, he showed great mercy. Now he's calling him a wicked slave. I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that had mercy on you? And his Lord now moved with anger. What was he moved with earlier? Compassion. This shows that when you and I refuse to forgive those who have sinned against us, we move the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, to anger. We grieve God when we won't forgive. May let that soak in. Because some of you are sitting there next to your spouse today and you're angry. And you're not planning to forgive anything. They owe you an apology. They owe you this. Maybe someone in this church is sitting on the other side. They're sitting over there and you're sitting over here. Because you don't want to talk to them. You don't want to see them. They owe you something. And you're going to show them. Some of you, in your absurdities, are doing that with God. God hurt you. And you're going to show him. You're going to give him the silent treatment. And God is sitting back going, oh goodness. Oh my me. What can I do to get them to talk to me again? Don't do that. God is God. You are a wretched, filthy sinner. He forgives and washes you clean through faith in Christ. Now his Lord has moved with anger. He handed that slave that, he had, slave that he had forgiven everything to his torturers until he should repay back what was owed to him. Now, this is not a, a picture of someone losing their salvation. From what we know about Christ and what we know about salvation elsewhere in the Bible, it looks as if God is putting this man away until such a time as he can forgive his brother. Because you know when you carry that burden of unforgiveness, you live in torture. Bitterness rises up. Hatred anger. I'll get them. No one does that to me. You see, if you're that angry, you're too into you. No one does that to me. That's what's upsetting you, isn't it? Someone jerked you around, and by golly, no one does that to me. Well, they did, and they will. And if you'd lower the opinion of yourself... You could just say, well, yeah, they did it to me. I deserve it. I've done it to others. I'm a wretch. I deserve it. Everything that's happening to you folks, we deserve. This morning, the first thing I, I observed, as you've heard me say before, I got out of bed, and I felt, the, I felt the ground on my feet, and I felt it because of the pain in my feet shooting up through my back. Hey, that's a good surge. It makes me know I'm alive. But I got up. I hit the ground. I went into my bathroom where there was running water. The air conditioner was still on. And I, I threw water on my face, and I had coffee and, a, and breakfast waiting for me, not because anybody cooked it for me, but because I was going to prepare it. I could see, I could hear, I could taste everything, the gift from God. Gift, 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 over in abundance. And I'm going to shake my fist at God? No. 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 We get all amped up because somebody owes us something. Now, as I explained to you last week, I know firsthand what it's like to have to forgive. Not just strangers. I know what it's like to have to be forgive, to be called to forgive, to be put in a position where I'm supposed to forgive people that have hurt me. People that I trusted. I know what it's like. And I know how impossible it is. It is basically impossible in my flesh to do that. I wish I could just say, done, forgiven. I don't know if it's if it's that ego that I said, we're not supposed to have, you did that to me, probably. I don't know if it's because it's just, I don't, because I can't get it out of my head. I don't know why, but it's something I struggle with regularly, still. So I understand if you're struggling to forgive someone. Perhaps you were a child and someone abused you in some way. Those things are in your head. They're not going away, are they? You know full well they're not. Some of you think that because I can't forget it and I haven't forgiven it, but God never attaches forgiveness with forgetfulness. You're not supposed to forget, per se. It'd be great to forget, wouldn't it? But we would all be a bunch of psychos. I remember nothing about what you did to me, nothing. You, you, you tried to kill me yesterday. Come on, let's go to lunch today. We're supposed to remember certain things. But what we remember, we're also supposed to use, based upon what God has done for us in Christ, to forgive. We're wiser for it. 
But I get it. So what do you do when you're at the end of your rope and you say, I understand and appreciate what you're saying, Lord, but I can't do that. I cannot. I'm unable to forgive in my flesh. My wife, my husband, what they did to me hurts. What my friend did, what my neighbor did, the money they owe me is just exorbitant. I I can't forget it, Lord. What do I do? Well, I have been praying wrongly. Frankly, through the years, I have prayed for greater love. Lord, help me to love more. I've been praying for greater tolerance. Lord, help me to be more tolerant. I've been praying for greater patience. What I learned this week is in a passage I I read every month. I read the New Testament once a month. I read this every single month. It's underlined in my Bible. It's there, and I never applied it. Here's what the disciples ask. In light of the difficulty of what Jesus has just said, if they repent seven times a day, come back to you, forgive them seven times a day. They respond to the Lord. Verse 5, increase our faith. Faith, not love, not tolerance, not patience, faith. And so I started thinking, why would they go for faith? Why increase our faith if we can't forgive? The best I can come up with is what happened back in, although Luke shares it in, uh, in, in the story, I believe it's chapter 12. I wrote it down in Luke 12. Uh, he speaks of, uh, it's the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was chapter 9. Yes, chapter 9. But in Matthew's gospel, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where, where Peter, James, and John, they go see Jesus, and uh, they watch him transform. They see the glory of God in Jesus. It's an amazing experience for those three. When they come down the mountain, they get to the base of the mountain, and the other, um, how many would that be? Three minus, there'd be nine apostles down at the, at the base of the mountain. Uh, some man has brought to him his demon-possessed boy. And the nine disciples at the base of the mountain have been unable to cast out the demon. Jesus comes down, casts the demon out, and they go to Jesus and they say, what, uh, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said, well, this kind only comes about by prayer. This kind only comes about by prayer? Don't they all come out by prayer? In other words, guys, you thought you had it within you? You have no faith. And so they pray, increase our faith. When Jesus gives them that example, no doubt they're reflecting back. They're going, now guys, remember when we couldn't cast that demon out? It was our lack of faith. Maybe that's what we lack. Mark's gospel adds another tidbit there in Mark chapter 9. The, the demon-possessed father asks Jesus, if you can help me, if you can cast it out, if you can help me. And Jesus kind of goes, if I can help you? Do you not know who, I'm talk- who you're talking to? I just happen to be God in the flesh. Now, he doesn't say that, but that's kind of the, the implication. If I can? And he tells the man, all things are possible to those who believe. And what does the man say in return? I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. I do. I believe personally that God created the world in six literal days. Bam. He could have done it in six seconds. Could have done it in six milliseconds. I believe that. The Bible tells me that. I believe there is a God. I believe that God speaks to us. I believe he speaks to us in his word. I believe his word is inerrant. I believe that everything that happens to us is part of the sovereign plan of God. I believe I have great faith. That's where I'm trying to go. No matter what happens, I have concocted in my mind if the worst of the worst things happen, if it's not just the betrayal of friends, if my wife died, if my children died, oh, that would be so horrible for any of us. Some of you have experienced it. But I, I've gone through what would happen if, if what happened to Job happened to me and I've decided, Lord, I'm with you. No matter what. Nothing can happen that's going to take me away. I believe I have great faith. But it ain't great enough. I know that. Why? Because of that forgiveness factor. It's not as easy as I thought. Even in light of the fact that I think of Jesus taking all my sins upon him and forgiving my sins. So the prayer that the apostles asked for, same prayer that you and I should pray for is, Lord, I believe you. I do. I believe you. I know you are God. Increase my faith. How do you do it? Pray that God would increase your faith. Do you think he's going to delay on that one? God delays on a lot of prayer requests, doesn't he? We can all attest to that. Sometimes we're thinking, wonder if he ever hears anything. God has a plan. God increased our faith. I don't think he waits around on that one. But it might take that trial you're in and drag it out a little bit longer because that's how you increase faith. 
hold on tighter and tighter. When you think you're at the end of your rope, that rope's a little bit longer than you think. And when you actually are, that faith actually allows you to tie a big, thick knot at the end of it and hang on. Because you believe that God's in control. You believe that he knows exactly how you feel. You believe that he knows just where you are. You believe that he feels your pain, and he does. God took all the pain that we would ever feel on that cross. Not just the physical pain, but the mental anguish. The people mocking him, spitting at him, and upon him. Increase our faith. So remembering back to what they didn't have with the Mount of Transfiguration, perhaps now they know. Lord, increase our faith. To increase means that they already had some measure of it. They wanted more of it. And you know, that's what what happens with faith. Faith is always a gift of God. It's the gift of God. It's not you being smart, having all the information you need and saying, yep, I have what I need. I'm smart enough to believe. Faith is always a gift. Turn with me, if you will, to the right. You go to Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. Romans chapter 12. I'll show you the first part. The saving faith that we have is a gift from God. It's not you being smart, not me being smart. Romans 12, 3. The Apostle Paul writes, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Good advice. But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Where'd you get that faith? God had allotted us a measure of faith. I think everyone who believes in Christ has been given that measure of faith. Enough faith to believe and be saved. But it's just tiny. It's like we're born again. We're reborn at that point. God gives us that faith. And what happens to a baby when a baby is born? They grow. Our faith that God gives us to believe grows. Look over, you continue to go to the right from Romans. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. So you go Romans. After Romans, you've got 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. You probably have this memorized. If you don't, I recommend it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. All a part of what I'm showing you that God gives faith. It's always a gift. Verse 8, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved. That's God's grace. He decided to do it. How does this happen? Through faith. And that it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not as a result of works so that no man may boast. Faith is a gift. God gave us that faith. Now ask him to increase that faith. He's giving you trials. If he lets you be married, marriage is, is an institution where we come together, a man and a woman, two totally different people, and you have to live together. You have to get along. You listen to each other. You forgive. You grow together. You grow spiritually or you don't. It's usually hinging upon whether the, the man has decided to be a man of God, to man up, to lead his family to be delicate with his wife, to be understanding of his wife. Peter says, as the weaker vessel, so that his prayers won't be hindered, 1 Peter 3, verse 7. It's a man who's taken control of his house, who loves his wife, as Paul says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, if you're having marriage problems, it's your fault. You, you men are the problem. 99.9% of the time, if not 100% of the time, it's you. Take the responsibility. Man up, men. Be delicate with your wives. Forgive her. Be a man that she can forgive. You say, well, how can I do that? Lord, increase my faith. You gave it to me. Within that institution of marriage, that's where we grow. That's where we become holy. Holy. We become holy in marriage. H-O-L-Y, holy, like Christ. Because I'm not sure you can be any more like Christ than when you forgive. Are you, can you? That's one of the ways, one of the great ways to be on a... No one looks more like Christ, I've heard, than when they forgive. I, I, I agree with that. Than when they forgive. Forgive. 
How can I do that when my flesh won't let me do it? Increase my faith, Lord. It means you're looking to God. You're going outside of what you can do, and you're saying, God, give me faith. Increase the faith you gave me. Make it better. And by the way, in the Greek text, increase, it's an aorist imperative verb. You're going, what the heck, and who cares? But I want to tell you why it's important. It means urgency. It's written in urgency. Do it now, God. I don't have it now. I need it now. Give it to me now. That's why I say it's a, it's a, the verb form shows that God will grant it if you'll ask him. Increased love is good. Increased patience is good. Tolerance is good. We've got to have that to deal with people. But faith, God, I, I need it now. You gave me a measure to save me. Grow it now. Verse 6, and the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed. By the way, mustard seed is very tiny. It's like a, it's smaller than a BB. So he's saying, if your faith is, is as tiny as a little tiny seed, little bitty seed that fits between your two fingers. If you had faith like a mustard seed. By the way, that little seed, when you plant it, grows to a tree upwards of 15 feet in height. Little tiny seed, isn't that amazing? That's what Jesus is comparing faith to. Starts off small when we're born again. And it grows into this monumental tree. If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted by the sea, and it would obey you. Now, this is a figure of speech. Uh, it would be like telling, a, in my neighborhood, there are uh, live oaks everywhere. The live oak tree is a huge, deep, intricate root system. Um, my buddy Ryan Schmidt came over the other day, and we've been chopping trees in my backyard. Well, he has with his chainsaw and trees. And, you know, and I, I must admit, I didn't have enough faith to say, up, move over to the burn pile. If I did, it just wasn't happening. That's not what God means. So Jesus is saying, and this is an old figure of speech. In fact, Jesus says elsewhere, you could say to the mountain, be moved into the sea. Mulberry tree, mountain, live oak, whatever it is. If your faith is small enough, you have power to do great divine things like forgive. As a a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached, and he used this with, regret, with regard to his disposition. He said, the mulberry tree is my disposition. The mulberry tree, he said, is my temper. He said, it's my anger. It's my willingness to snap. You see, most preachers struggle with that. I'll be honest with you. Most of us struggle with it. We're type A personalities, and type A personalities are strung a little bit tighter than type B folks. You know that if you're married to one. Um, we, we have a very idealistic way of looking at the world. And Spurgeon was one of those men, the greatest preacher, one of the greatest preachers that ever lived on the planet. That's not an, an overestimation. He was a great and godly man. Died in the late 1800s in England, in London. The gospel was so strong in London. People came, 25,000, 30,000 people to hear the gospel in London. Can you imagine that? It was written about in the paper the next day. It was news what Spurgeon preached. And he said, that mulberry tree is like me. It's like these roots of my flesh go so deep. My disposition is so strong. My reactions are so sinful. And he said, the prayer of increased faith is what levels me out. And so when I think of that, I think the same thing. Lord, increase my faith. Because when I want to burst with my own frustration with the with those root system of my life that goes into the ground so deeply in my flesh when i just want to blow up i hold it back god if i'm this angry it must mean my faith stinks because what is is what is if i'm angry i'm angry ultimately at you for letting whatever situation has made me this angry make me this angry God, increase my faith. I get behind a car. Man, I'm, an, I'm a type A. I got, I'm, I got to get to point A to point B. I don't need anybody or anything slowing me down. Does anyone relate to this? You get behind some schmo who doesn't know the speed limit, and they're just they're on their phone using both lanes. Maybe, just maybe, God in his sovereignty put that schmo in front of you to slow you down because he doesn't want you up ahead where you would be normally without that schmo in front of you to keep you from the garbage that's waiting. Maybe. Maybe he just wants you to be late. 
God, increase my faith. Because it's not as big as I thought. I have patted myself on the back and thought, I got pretty good faith. I don't. I do and I don't. I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. I look in the Old Testament, I see examples. I think I put them on your bulletin I did. 2CI. Abraham's example with Lot. When Abraham was touring the land that God gave him, he's got his nephew Lot. His nephew had a bunch of herdsmen, and Abraham had a bunch of herdsmen, and they're, they're all together and they're arguing. And Abraham calmly and peacefully tells Lot, Lot, all this land, take your pick. Wherever you want to go, you and your herdsmen can go there. It's all Abraham's land, but Abraham gives Lot, who's really not even supposed to be with him. When God told Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, he didn't tell him to take Lot, but he did. Lot chose Sodom and Gomorrah. Beautiful, lush land became a horrible place. That's where he chose. Abraham in faith, in calm and peacefulness, separated. Moses, when his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam made fun of him, questioned whether or not he should be in charge, forgave them. Actually prayed for them. You know the saddest part about Moses is every time someone sinned in Israel, Moses was there to intercede on their behalf. But when Moses sinned, when he struck that rock twice, no one was there to pray for him. I find that terribly sad. He interceded for everyone in faith. No one interceded for him. Joseph, this young man who well, he angered his brothers. He was cocky. I'm dad's favorite. Deal with it. So they sold him into slavery. Doesn't matter how cocky and arrogant he was. He didn't deserve that. Sold him into slavery. Oh, God humbled that arrogant, cocky young man. 12 years in jail. 13 years in jail, I think. 17 when he went. 30 when he got out. The brothers came across him nine years after that. And what did he do? I forgive you. What you meant for evil, he says, God meant for good. I forgive you. He could have had him destroyed. He was second in power to the Pharaoh. But he forgave. He forgave. People that sold him into slavery, his own blood relatives, his brothers, sold him into slavery. I forgive you. And David. David was hunted by King Saul. David stood over King Saul one night. Saul and his army, Abner, his general sitting there right next to him, and they were asleep. And David had made his way down, and he was standing over Saul. Could have killed him, could have killed Abner, could have been king. He was already anointed by Samuel as king. But David didn't think it was his right to kill the king. That's the Lord's anointed. God will take care of him. And when his men were saying, kill him, David, get him and take the crown, David said, no, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Take his water jug and his sword. We'll go talk to him from the top of the mountain. Abner! Abner! Is that you, Dave? Yeah. Why didn't you guard the king that well last night? Here's his sword and water jug. Could have killed you both. No, he forgave Saul. He forgave Saul when he could have taken vengeance. How do you do that? God increased my faith. How do I forgive my spouse who cheated on me? How do I forgive my spouse who lies to me? How do I forgive my friend, my former business partner who hurt me, stole my money? Remember the cross where all of your sins were washed away through your faith that God gave you, and you'll have no problem forgiving. Increase my faith. And so this little parable that ends this seems out of place, but it fits. Which of you, and by the way, the Pharisees are still standing there. Pharisees, people that do the right thing, maybe it's you. Maybe you've lived your life and you're, you're a Pharisee. There's a lot of there's Pharisees in the Bible church. Bible church today is usually people who've come out of a, a religion or a, or a denomination that didn't teach them a whole lot. They get to the Bible church and they go, we have arrived. Now we know our theology. We're reading the Bible. We're better than everyone else. Uh, it, it breeds arrogance, especially in the young people. Uh, we breed them out of here. These kids come out of here. They're taught. They're not saved, but they're taught. They're taught the Scripture. Some of them think they're saved, and they go out, and they're just arrogant. We know more than you. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look, 
You guys might think you have everything here. You guys might think that, but I just gave you an admonition to forgive over and over, and you can't do it. Increase our faith, Lord. If you just have a tiny amount of faith, you can move mountains. You can uproot trees, which is to say you can do anything. Then he says at the end of it all, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? Look at this in terms of, of, of your employment. If you have a boss, do you expect to, uh, to come into to work every morning or, or every afternoon? You, you work the morning and you, you work diligently. You get to work at 6 a.m. at noon. Do you expect your boss to say, hey, well done. Let me make you a meal here. Sit down. No. Your boss might give you an hour off to take off for lunch, but you're going to go back to work, and that's the deal, isn't it? You work, you put in your time, you get a paycheck. Boss doesn't owe you anything other than the paycheck he agreed to give you or he or she agreed to give you. Saying the same thing here. Which slave? We might think, okay, a slave's out there plowing field or tending a sheep. He's going to come in from a long day. Will his master say, come on in here, let me feed you? That's absurd. No one would think that. The Pharisees would. You see, this little parable is about at the end of the day when we've done everything that we're supposed to do and even prayed for the things we can't do. And while we're patting ourselves on the back going, Lord, look at me. Did you see what I did today, God? You see how many people I forgave? You see that I went and said I'm sorry to my wife? That was hard for me to do, Lord. You know that, right? I'm going to wake up to a new car in the driveway, right, Lord? Did you see how, how I raised my kids? You know, I graduated. My kids are 18 years old. They're all good people. You saw what I did, Lord, right? Didn't you? Or I took care of special needs kids. Or I worked in the nursery. Look at me. I've gone to church every day. Look, Lord, I read the Bible in a year, every year for the last five, ten years. You're impressed with me, aren't you, Lord? You think? Verse 8, but will he not say to him? This is the, the master. Slaves worked all day. Master's not going to fix him a meal. He's going to say instead, but say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you may eat and drink. Now, a slave here in this context is one who's been bought. They're the property of the owner. It's a master and a slave. That's offensive in our day and age because we think of the Civil War and, and slavery in the United States. But slavery in the Bible is spoken of often. It doesn't have anything to do with race has to do with conquered peoples, people that were conquered. Instead of killing them, they were put to, to service. They were bought. Or it was a child that uh, someone didn't want. In the Roman Empire, if you didn't want a baby, it was horrific to abort the baby. They would never do that. But they would have the baby, leave it on the street corner, and let it die unless someone came along, took the baby, and put, made them their slaves, brought them up to be a slave. Slavery was huge. Half the population were slaves. Slaves were owned they were property of the master. They were different than day laborers. So a slave always had what he or she needed. They had the comforts of a home being provided for by their master. Verse 9. He does not thank the slave. That is, the master didn't thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded. Does he? So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded of you, say this. We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Look back over at chapter 14, verse 11. If you don't have it underlined, make sure you do. Jesus says, Luke 14, 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, there are Christians, there are people today like the Pharisees who are in this crowd, Jesus is speaking, who expect that God is going to reward them for their great religiosity. Look at what we did. Look at what we didn't do. Compare us, God, to all those others out there doing those things. Look at us. Don't let that be you. We are nothing but bought people. Redeemed, bought by the blood of Christ through faith that he gave us. God's grace, all him. Faith that he gave us, all him. Giving us tasks to do, all him. And at the end of the day, while we do the tasks he's given us, he owes us nothing. Some folks live as if God owes them everything. That's why they give them the silent treatment when they don't get it. You took my child, Lord, I'll show you. Well, don't forget that those children that you have, folks, they aren't yours. You didn't make them. They're God's. 
Those cars you drive, they're not yours. Your ability to work and make money, all God-given. Your ability to think logically, a gift of God. Not all can, can they? That air you just breathed, that ain't yours. You're stealing it every time you breathe in. His air. His guarantees. His promises. His people. That spouse of yours, that belongs to God. If God forgave that spouse through faith, oh, you're holding a sheep. You're holding the apple of God's eye, one for which Christ died. Think about that the next time you want to snap at your spouse, not forgive them. You treat my children like that, I'll hurt you. Imagine God, the way his people are treated by his people. Causing them to stumble, not forgiving them, not praying for increased faith, not relying on God for the one that increases faith or the one that gave faith. And then going around patting themselves on the back like they've done something that God is going, wow, you're amazing, Lance. Look at you. Man, everybody, look, here's Lance. Heaven forbid that there should ever enter my mind. And you know what? Yet the Bible does. God do, does do that with some folks. The one he really does that with is Job. While Satan's going around trying to show God all the wicked people in the world, God says, have you considered my servant Job? He's like the best of the best, Satan. Give it a try. Roll the dice and see what you can do with him. So God does recognize faithfulness. It's not that God is going, yeah, whatever. You're just my slaves. It's not that. God is glorified in our faith that he gave us. He is honored in our worship. But don't think at the end of the day he owes you something other than what he's given you. When he comes back, by the way, as we saw back in chapter 12, verse 37, he will serve us. He will serve us. Even though the parable says this is not normal, when our Lord God comes back, he's going to serve us. Lance, can I get you some more queso? Yeah, and I need a straw if you're at it. I'll be right back. I'll be right back. You ever had a really good waiter or waitress? Best one I ever was in Abilene, Texas years ago. And, and after everything we asked him for, he'd go, it's a deal. It's a deal. It's a deal. Can I get another straw? It's a deal. Everything was a deal. The deal was, I said it, he brought it. It's a deal. God, can I get some more queso? I mean, because here on earth now, it's no longer bad for me. Extra spicy jalapenos to get it with some really greasy chips and a straw. It's a deal. He's going to bring it. Do we deserve it? No. And then he's going to give us an eternal existence with him. Together with his other redeemed people. My friends, God owes us nothing. Nothing. Don't go away thinking he does. Don't go playing that victim card. God, you did this to me. I'll show you. I remember seeing an episode of... of, uh, the West Wing with Martin Sheen in it. Martin Sheen is, an, is a scene in, Martin, in, in one of the episodes where he was, he's angry with God. And he looks up at heaven and he takes a cigarette in his mouth. He throws it on the ground right down across and he steps on it. I'll show you God. At which point do we think the almighty creator was going, ooh, I really need to apologize to Marty. We think that some do, that God owes him some explanation or an apology. Gene Simmons, the bass player for the rock group Kiss, thinks that when he sees God, this is his motion. He says, sit down. I'm going to tell him, sit down. I'm going to get to the bottom of why you let things happen as you let them happen. No, you're not. No, you're not. The almighty creator God allows what he does for his own purposes. It is not for us to question. He is God. We are not. These eyes only see fleshly things. We don't see what's out there. We don't see what's in the next dimension. We are blinded to that, but we think we know. Have you ever seen a kid or had a kid argue with you? Especially if you're a teacher. The kid seems to think they know more than you, and you're going, you stupid little. But you don't say it because you're a teacher, and you're trained to, to smile and go, bless your little heart. <laughs> but you're thinking, you don't know anything. 
It's like 15, 16, 20-year-old people who get a little, they read a book somewhere along the way, and they come and they want to come down here and tell me, you know, because I know so much, here's where you're wrong. You're, you're, you're what, 20? You've lived such a long life of theological experience and, and all of this, and okay, thank you. Don't you think God is all the more insulted? I am the creator of heaven and earth. I am sovereign over everything. And you, you little worm, you dirt from the ground, you will answer back to your maker? That's what Paul says in Romans 9. Who are you? Oh, man, you little pipsqueak. Shall what is formed say to him who formed me, why did you make me? Let God be God. He is so powerful. He is so loving. He is so holy. He has forgiven us through faith in Christ. And He has asked us to forgive as we have been forgiven. If that's a glitch in your life, fix it. If you can't do it, pray the prayer. Luke 17, 5. God, increase our faith. Let's pray. God, increase our faith. I pray that not just for me, but for everyone here. On behalf of everyone, we all need it. We believe in you. We have saving faith to believe that you are God. You became flesh. You came to this earth and lived the perfect life because we couldn't. You died our death to take the penalty upon yourself. You do all things for your glory. We believe it. We trust it. We are saved by that by your grace through faith in Christ but God our faith is still wrestling with our flesh increase our faith may our faith be seen as humility worship looking searching for ways to honor and glorify you this we pray in Jesus name your son and our God amen Go, my friends, and forgive. May God increase your faith. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.